now I have the pleasure, we have a guest speaker this morning, and I have a great pleasure of introducing her. Uh, it's Grace Schmelzer, her and her husband, Dave, uh, are building a blue ocean community in Santa Monica. They started the, our sister church in Boston uh, before that. And in February, Grace got to come with us on our India trip, and we had such a great time together. I so enjoyed her, and I know that you're really going to enjoy hearing her today. So please help me welcome Grace Schmelzer. Thank you guys so much. I'm really excited to be here. It's, oh, I see. Yes. Good point. That would be better. (laughs) Um, uh, I'm really excited to be here. It's fun for me to be back in New York. I love the energy of the city, and I I really am excited to be back in your church. It's been a while since I've been here, since our family moved to, oh, you probably put that, that forward for a reason, since our family moved to Santa Monica. Pray with me if you would. Um... Heavenly Father, I'm just so, so grateful to be together, and I just pray that your presence would fill this room, that we would feel your love, your presence here, your goodness. I pray that you would help me in the speaking and help, um, help us in the listening. Lord, we just want to feel out and search for your heart as we talk about these things together. And we look forward to what you have uh, in the retreat and in the, in the coming weeks. Thank you so much for your, your love for us and your guidance in our lives. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, Charles invited me to speak here this morning about uh, why I left evangelicalism. And my initial thought was like, whoa, that's a complicated subject for me. And uh, uh, actually, I'm really grateful, though, for the chance to, to think through my story uh, and just kind of my history with this. Um, my history with evangelicalism is deep. Uh, I received a lot from evangelicalism. So, so many good things. And, uh, and actually, you need to know about me. I'm a really loyal person. <laughs> like, um, so leaving anything that I'm deeply bonded to, that, that's, that's a long and complicated story. Um, I grew up in Houston, Texas, and my family on both sides are Texans. Uh, and for me, my faith, even as a child, was, was much more than just going to church. Someone helpfully, helpfully taught me, or yeah, taught me when I was a little girl that Jesus can be like your best friend. And I really took that to heart. Like as a young girl walking to school, I would be um, like, look up at the sky and be talking to Jesus. And I'd make up little songs, like worship songs. I'd be singing to Jesus. Um, And so every night I would also pray before I went to sleep at night. I was like, God, I love you. And Jesus, I love you. And help me grow in my faith. And I really had no idea what that meant or what that looked like. Uh, my family was going to this big Presbyterian church in town, and, and honestly, like, help, kind of practically helping people grow in their faith, that was not something they were particularly good at, I would say. Um, and then later, when it came time to apply to go off to college, I knew I wanted to go to a, a good school, but I was also really praying that God would take me someplace where I would grow in my faith, um, where I'd grow the most spiritually. I ended up at Stanford, and I remember signing up at a club's fair the very first week of school for a student Christian fellowship that was on my campus. And I was, I was amazed. I went to my first event there, and I was amazed to find lots of other people my age 
who were as into God and faith as I was. That, that was new. I had kind of thought I was like the only one before. <laughs> and, uh, um, and I was so excited because it felt to me like most of them were actually ahead of me in the faith. So I was just excited to get to be with them and, and hang out with them and grow. Um, key, uh, key features and gifts, I would say, of that whole, those years were learning to do faith together. Uh, with a close company of others, like bonded friendships around following Jesus together. And also scripture study. You know, that group was really good, I think, at studying the Bible and applying it. And so, like, for me, like, the Bible just came alive in new ways in that setting. The stories of Jesus and who he is, what he's like, the things he does, it just came alive. Also, I would say leadership and hosting was something I really received in that group. Um, I hosted and led um, various dorm Bible study groups. And so just this idea of creating a space where people can encounter and grow in God together, um, that was so valuable. I mean, obviously, especially kind of like where my life went. I'm very thankful for that. Um, Charles Park and I actually met in that group. We were the same year as students, and so we were, we were students growing together in our faith. Um, I would say that the next key or big season for me in terms of my story with evangelicalism is getting involved with um, the vineyard, the vineyard church. Um, the first vineyard church I ever visited was in California, and I remember walking in and being so blown away just even by the worship because it was the first time really I'd encountered like interactive experiential worship because um, people were singing to God and receiving from God, not just like singing about God, you know, which was more like my Presbyterian upbringing. Um, and then also the Holy Spirit. Oh my gosh, you know, I'd never really been in a place where people were teaching directly about this whole third person of the Trinity. It's like we talk about God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but who is the Holy Spirit? And what does the Holy Spirit do? And um, you know, I just, my impression, I came away, I thought, like, these vineyard people, like, they expect that every time when they get together, that God is present, and he's alive, and he's speaking, and he's healing, he's doing cool stuff every time. After the sermon, like, some of the prayer ministry team would be up, and they, they might have, like, prophetic words of, like, encouraging things God was saying to us as a group, or specific words of like, oh, God's going to heal this today, or this condition. And I saw lots of people getting healed, and that just blew me away. Um, so just even the whole idea of that, like, they were teaching that we can all learn how to receive from God, how to tune into Him, how to um, hear His voice, this idea of two-way conversational prayer. I feel like that changed the whole character of, like, my experience of my own faith. Because I could, before I, I knew how to, like, talk to God, but I didn't really know, how, how can I hear back? Um, responding to his promptings. The idea that we can all learn about and, and practice together our spiritual gifts so that when we come together, we all have something to contribute. I loved that. Um, it was actually in a vineyard church in San Francisco that I met my husband, Dave. A few, we were later married. A f- couple years after that, we moved out to the East Coast, to the Boston area, And we were part of helping plant a vineyard church in Cambridge, Massachusetts, along with our team. And uh, the church did well initially, growing initially with lots of um, lots of people from like this campus Christian fellowship kind of network. Well, of course, in Cambridge there's so many universities in Boston, so like we had a lot of students and staff and grads, you know, from sort of that network. But then increasingly, as we advertised. 
we had a wide cross-section of people from the city at large who were coming. And our goal from the very beginning was to build a church that could reach the 98% of people in the Boston area who weren't going to any church. And increasingly, we started to see that happen. More and more people found their way to us who had either had no faith background or who grew up in another faith tradition but who were wanting something more spiritually or who maybe had some kind of Christian or a church background but that they'd left, left it behind years before. And yet similarly, they were now in a, in a place of just wondering if God had more for them spiritually. Um, so as a church over time, even among our leaders, we increasingly saw these two different constituencies growing. So it was those who had grown up in an evangelical church background and been really shaped by that, and then those who had actually found faith for the first time with us as a church, or maybe come back to faith after many years. So this second group's culture, understandably, was much more secular, whereas the first group's culture was shaped by their evangelical roots. So then sociologically, you add into that the, the cur- current culture wars. And I would say for the last 10, 15, 20 years, of course, one of the biggest stories in our country is, is how we as a society treat LGBT people. And we've seen unprecedented change in just our, our country's attitudes towards that over this time. And in the church world, you may know as well, it's been a huge conversation and a huge debate. How do we regard and how do we treat our LGBT, uh, LGBT, LGBT people LGBT members? How do we pastor them? In our church in Cambridge, we saw that even among our own leadership, um, our small group leaders, people fell out differently on these questions, often along these cultural lines. For some of our people who grew up with, who grew up conservative evangelical, it just seemed obvious to them that being gay was a sin and that it was a healing issue. Whereas for our secular background people, it just seemed obvious to them that anything other than full inclusion of LGBT people would be a justice issue. And isn't that interesting? How different these two groups' core assumptions and responses were. And both felt strongly that they were each representing God's heart on the matter. And it got me thinking, you know, I've always had an interest in how the, the gospel or the good news is transmitted and how it takes root and grows in other cultures. Like, how does God reveal himself in other cultures? And how does the expression of what church is and what church looks like, how does that vary from culture to culture? And an earlier mentor of mine, um, the very wise Brenda Wong, used to teach that each culture has their own redemptive gifts. And that's what they do uniquely well, or how they uniquely represent the heart of God or the glory of God in what they offer to the world or what they offer to the church universal. So it's this idea that when we come together as a church universal, each culture is bringing their own redemptive gifts and, and, and how they're following God, how they honor God, how they worship God. And so the idea is that together, the splendor of God's glory is, is most clearly shown in all that rich diversity. And I just love that idea. It rings really true to me. Uh, In the book of Revelation, which is this crazy apocryphal vision that the Apostle John had, um, it's the last book in the Bible, he describes in the end, in chapter 21, how there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. 
He sees this image of the holy city coming down from heaven. He says there'll be no need in that day for a sun or a moon because the glory of God will illuminate the city. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, is its light. He says further that the nations, the word nations here means like people groups or tribes, that all the nations will walk in its light. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Well, I love this picture of all the peoples of the earth coming and offering, contributing their own redemptive gifts. The gifts they received from God are now being offered back to God in this spectacular scene of gathered global worship. That's inspiring to me. Now, I think that if each culture has its own redemptive gifts, I think it may also be true that each culture has its own blind spots, places or areas where they really don't get it or actually unbeknownst to them are at odds with the heart of God. And sometimes I think, you know, it's easier to recognize another culture's redemptive gifts or blind spots than our own. So, okay, I began to wonder, maybe the folks from our church, um, this kind of subset of the conservative evangelicals uh, in our old church, I thought, well, maybe they regard that their redemptive gift is that they really care about purity and holiness. But I have to say, I think it can be a dangerous thing, uh, generally speaking, missiologically, if you're crossing into someone else's culture, It's a dangerous thing, I think, to presume that you know what their biggest sins are. I'm reminded of the story of an American missionary who moved with his family to a small cluster of villages in Africa to work with a recently planted church movement there. And right away, he started urging the African church elders that they needed to preach more against polygamy, which was a widespread practice in their culture. And I might point out, it was actually common also in the Old Testament and practiced by many of the biblical patriarchs. Uh, Thankfully, the African church elders pushed back and told him their concerns that his implementation policy or idea of of how he wanted every man to immediately, like, choose one wife and put away the other wives. Uh, so, So thankfully, they pushed back and said, like, that his plan would cause incredible social upheaval, that the rejected wives and their children would be left with nothing, no means of support, no means of protection, and they feared that many would, would become victim to trafficking and prostitution. And meanwhile, the African elders couldn't help but notice that this American missionary had quite an anger problem. They felt embarrassed when within their hearing, he would explode verbally at his own wife and his own children or at younger church leaders. Because to them, this was a more worrisome and grievous sin than the polygamy that he seemed so obsessed with ridding their villages of. So yeah, the general wisdom missiologically is that when you're working with people from another culture, it's safer and it's wiser to raise up indigenous leadership and to teach them the core tools of being able to read and interpret the Bible and also being able to seek God and the Holy Spirit for just his wisdom of how to lead their own people. And then those those leaders that you raise up are actually better equipped to lead their own people than the foreigner would be. Why? Because they won't have the cross-cultural biases or blind spots that, that the foreigner would. So 
even just at this moment, I want to I take a second and turn over on the back of your program. There's some space. Let's just take a moment and ask God. Maybe you already have ideas, but let's just ask God, what would be like one or two redemptive gifts in your own culture? And see if there's also a blind spot that comes to mind as you think about that. And you can choose, you can choose like your regional culture that you grew up in. You could choose um, your religious culture. You could choose, you know, whatever tribe you feel like you most identify with, maybe choose that culture. If you're bicultural, you could do this exercise for both or pick one. And often that's true, right? We have more, we have more discernment. We can see our own culture better when we kind of view it in contrast or against other cultures. Um, So let's just take a moment. Father, would you just um, speak to us? What would you bring to mind? Are there, are there, what are the key redemptive gifts in our own culture? And would you also speak to us about any blind spots? Thank you, God. Yeah. So obviously it'd be really fun to find someone you can talk to more about like what what maybe came to mind or what you wrote down. Okay. Oops. I lost my page. Okay. So in our church in Cambridge, we, we had set out to reach the 98% of people who weren't being reached by any of the existing churches. Um, and actually, Dave and I have had many people who've told us over the years that they feel like they never would have found God if it hadn't been for our church. But what happened with this whole LGBT debate as it was going on in our society and in our church? Um, well, there was this subset, certainly not all of them, but a subset of our evangelical background folks who were very upset that we were so welcoming. And in fact, that we were honoring the stories, too, of our LGBT members, um, that we weren't automatically biasing our leaders or telling them what they had to think. Um, But we were asking our people to seek God and seek his guidance, the guidance of the Holy Spirit on the whole subject. And, And we were asking people just to follow their conscience as God would inform that. But it was telling to me that basically all of our secular background leaders remained confident that it would be against the heart of God not to welcome our LGBT friends. And for me personally, too, it was powerful for me early on. I was helping to lead the seat class in our, in our church, and there was a lesbian couple that was in my small group. And when it came time for the Holy Spirit Saturday, there's this point in the Holy Spirit Saturday where you invite the Holy Spirit for anyone who'd like to receive more prayer for the filling of the Holy Spirit. And these two women bam, right away, as soon as we invited the Holy Spirit to come, they both like were instantly filled with the Holy Spirit. They burst out in prayer languages. They're laughing. They're, they're like, like crying with joy. It was like so beautiful, just like their countenances. And I just, I was kind of like, wow, look at that. You know, like, like the Holy Spirit is not withholding himself from them. And it brought to mind for me the story 
uh, in Acts, when Peter was prompted by the Holy Spirit to go to Cornelius' house, who was a Gentile, remember Jews in that era, they did not have associations with Gentiles. Gentiles were unclean. Um, so he's prompted by the Holy Spirit to go to Cornelius' house because Cornelius has gathered all his friends and family. And as soon as Peter starts preaching to them, they all end up dramatically receiving the gospel and being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Um, so your passage here, the circumcised believers, these are the other Jews who'd gone with Peter, they were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they'd heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. As I was praying, at one point, I felt like I was looking at all of my life experiences. And it seemed to me that it was as if Jesus had been patiently trying to prepare me to understand and to change my mind from the traditional evangelical viewpoint about LGBT people. And, and that was through like conversations with like many ministry partners in my life to a beloved gay member in my own family in Texas, uh, to the many sincere LGBT people who were coming to our church community and clearly seeking God and clearly being met and filled by him. But as a church, the more that we acknowledged and welcomed our LGBT members, the more upset this small subset of evangelicals in our church became. They were few in number, that little group, but they were quite entitled. After all, most of them had been with us since the early days when we'd first planted. They'd led, they'd led in the church, they'd tithed, they'd served. But in the end, when they could see that they weren't going to win the day, or, or convince everyone else they weren't going to win the day on this whole question, they left. And they mostly left badly, cursing the church, cursing us, and with a number of really hateful conversations with either our staff or our leaders. It was a hard season. And it was kind of chilling, right? I mean, what happened? These people had been our friends and our partners, we thought. We'd worshipped and we'd prayed together. And they'd used their gifts in the church over years. And then now to have them turn on us with such vitriol was pretty dismaying. And what was even more chilling was, was actually seeing the same dynamic playing out in one Blue Ocean church after another. Ours was not an isolated experience in Cambridge. No, our Blue Ocean pastor friends were each encountering a few, again, a subset of the evangelicals in their own churches who were so upset and angry and that in some cases they determined to be as destructive as possible on their way out. They weren't going to leave quietly or agree to, quote, bless each other despite differences. And externally, too, in the Vineyard Movement at large, our beloved former national director stepped down to retire. And with the new, the new leadership, the leadership change, we suddenly began to realize how much we as Blue Ocean had apparently been favored and protected by him as long as he was leading but now under new leadership that was openly hostile to us, it quickly became clear that we were distrusted and frankly not wanted if we wouldn't fall in line with the vineyard movement as it was being pulled far to the right. Each of us uh, blue ocean leaning pastors in our own timing realized that we needed to leave the vineyard. And thankfully blue ocean was formed enough at that point 
that the churches basically asked if we couldn't just make it our own affiliation and church network. Because it's nice, right, as a church or as pastors not to be alone, but to be in a relational network. Anyway, after all this, what are my reflections on this whole story? I can see that this, this hatefulness that we each encountered, it was not a few isolated jerks, but it was throughout the system or culture of evangelicalism that somehow it seemed to produce this response or this fruit. Why were they so mad at all of us? Maybe it's that they, they assumed we were one of them. But then if we were going to come out on the side of being allies to LGBT people, it's like, whoa, you know, like we'd betrayed them or something. I don't know. But I'm reminded of Jesus' teaching where he says, you'll know a tree by its fruit. He says in Matthew 7, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. And you've heard my story about how much good I feel like I've received from evangelicalism. But it seems to me that with regard to evangelicalism's like hateful treatment of LGBT people and their allies, that it is really bearing bad fruit. And it doesn't seem to have eyes to see it because it's stuck, I think, in its own blind spot. And it's sort of self-destructing in there if you follow some of the national news on these, these things. Now, in all of this journey of leaving evangelicalism, though certainly painful, what I've realized is there's, I think, a bright future for us in Blue Ocean. I think there's a tremendous opportunity before us as we move forward to offer to spiritually hungry people everywhere the living and powerful Jesus. This Jesus who is alive and who's good and who welcomes all people to himself. I mean, that's the same Jesus I fell in love with as a little girl. That's the same Jesus who I fell in love with more as a young woman learning to hear God's voice. Like practicing two-way conversational prayer because I was just so amazed at how gracious he was to me. Far more gracious than I was to myself. I have kind of a harsh internal critic thing going on sometimes. But like, oh my gosh, it was life-changing to me to like actually be able to hear from this gracious God. And I can't pretend that he's not that gracious to all people including our LGBT brothers and sisters, because I've tasted over and over how he treats me. Well, I've called this talk how to keep moving forward with Jesus, and what are ways that we can do that? Number one, I'd say celebrate the experience with Jesus that you've had. Why? Because I think it's our experience of God that forms our convictions. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, he says, We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard. I mean, that's what we have. That's our story. That's what we have to offer in a hungry world. Number two, embrace that, of course, you have blind spots. In the Gospel of John, chapter 9, there's a story of how Jesus heals a man who was born blind. And it sets off this firestorm of criticism from the Pharisees because Jesus healed him on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees, I have to say, not notably a joyful, growing group of people. <laughs> so they, they threw this man, the, the man who'd been healed and now can see, they threw him out of the synagogue because he wasn't going to, like, renounce that Jesus was from hell or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and so later Jesus finds him, and he says, For judgment I have come into the world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. 
And some Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him say this. And they said, what? Are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So what can we do about our blind spots? How are they revealed to us? How do we get past them? Well, maybe to start with, we need to know what kind of fruit is coming out of us. The fruit doesn't lie. That's what Jesus teaches. The fruit doesn't lie. And, and then I would say a key thing that's been really meaningful in my journey is hearing other people's stories. I think that's point number three. Um, like in my own journey, knowing gay men and women personally and hearing their stories, that's been incredibly humbling and instructive to me. I don't think I could have made progress without that. Um, I realized I needed to hear their stories, and I needed to interact with God about their stories. And my last point for how do we keep moving forward in faith is dream of continual growth in Jesus. Kind of like my childhood prayer of like, God, help me grow in my faith. In John 16, verse 12, Jesus says to the disciples, I have much more to say to you. This is right before he's going to go to the cross. He says, I have much more to say to you, much more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Do you see this? Jesus' plan for the progressive revelation of his will and goodness and of how we're to follow him is the Holy Spirit within us. The Holy Spirit will light our way forward in the times in which we live. Pray with me. God, I just thank you for your love for us and for all people. And I ask right now that you would deepen our experience of you. Deepen our experience of you, Jesus. Even today, And in this whole season, we pray that you'd take us forward with you. Like higher up and further in. Thank you, God. We also ask if if there's anything that's displeasing or dishonoring to you, would you reveal that to us? Show us what to do with that. If there's anything in us, thank you, Lord. Oh, Holy Spirit, we need you so much. We're entirely dependent on you. Help us feel our way forward. Help us please you as we follow you and make us good news to a hungry world all around us. Thank you so much, God. Amen.